Our mindset is one of the biggest determiners of our success and is perhaps the biggest determiner of whether or not we achieve our dreams and ambitions. I'm Sarah Moore and this is Ambition Unleashed. In each episode of this podcast, we're going to explore a different mindset shift to consider making if you want to identify and achieve your biggest, boldest, most breakthrough ambitions. We'll also hear from thought leaders who are experts in or from extraordinary individuals who have lived experience of making this shift in their life, leadership or work. Together, we'll explore a conventional way we as humans find ourselves thinking and introduce and invite you to think in a more unconventional way, what we call breakthrough thinking. Sharing some of the insights we've had over the many years we've been coaching and consulting with some of the world's most extraordinary leaders at many of the world's biggest companies. We'll give you the fundamental aha moments you need to make you more innovative, more transformational and more capable of delivering breakthroughs and ultimately smash any ceilings that only the way in which we think can put in our way. In today's podcast, we are looking into the heart of innovation and the deeply held craving we as humans have for certainty. The need to know how things will turn out and that they will turn out the way we want them to. We all have pressure on our time and have others relying on the outcomes we produce, whether that's within our families and the people that depend upon us or within our roles in organisations. We walk through life making promises for what we will do and our reputation and integrity hangs on whether we do what we say we will or not. This leads us to make promises we are certain about that we can deliver. In today's world, what we know we can deliver, what we have provided in the past, is falling short, especially for the big problems, where there doesn't seem to be an answer. There's always a loss or a loser. The solutions need to meet what seems to be sometimes polarised outcomes, such as balancing stakeholder expectations in the short term and still planning for the long term. So the big challenge here is, let's try something new. How do we control our propensity, even when we hear people say, let's try something new, let's turn this upside down, let's do this a completely different way? Our propensity to wince, think of the upheaval, sit firmer into our chairs and sometimes literally our bodies contract with the discomfort of the uncertainty of not succeeding or letting others down. How do we open ourselves up to experiment and try new things, make mistakes but reach new heights? Today I have a wonderful guest host and partner who has been a colleague of mine for nearly 20 years, Justin Templetwood, and is a Chief Breakthrough Sustainability Lead. Thanks, Sarah, and thank you for having me on this episode. For me, this episode discusses arguably the most pressing challenge we've ever faced in how to lead a business transformation that rises to the challenge of preventing catastrophic climate breakdown through unsustainable business practices. A central theme we will explore today is how leaders must embrace the need to create a culture that rewards and celebrates exploration and lets go of the comfort and certainty in predicting outcomes based on our past experience. We are taking on the question as to how business leaders can make this shift urgently if we are to meet our commitments to stakeholders and society and align with what the scientists are telling us about needs to be done and done very quickly. 
Whilst this seems a daunting task, there is plenty of evidence that this is possible and there is a pathway for leaders to embrace once they have let go of the unconscious passions of behaviour that keep us addicted to the status quo. We have a very special guest to help us navigate this topic in Dr Margaret Heffernan, who began her career as a producer for the BBC, then moved to the US where she spearheaded multimedia productions for various financial and educational software companies and was recognised as one of the top 100 media executives by The Hollywood Reporter. The author of six books, Margaret's third book, Willful Blindness, was named one of the most important business books of the decade by the Financial Times. Her TED Talks have been seen by more than 11 million people and she is a regular contributor for the Financial Times and the Huffington Post. Margaret is also a professor of practice at the University of Bath, where she holds an honorary doctorate and she is the lead faculty for the Forward Institute's Responsible Leadership Programme. Exciting, Justin. Looking forward to this one. One of the things that I've heard Margaret talk about is the difference between complicated problems and complex problems and the importance to distinguish the two. Complicated problems are problems with little variables like automating and standardising a process that doesn't change. Once the problem is solved, it can run well over and over again. Yet a complex problem is one with many and constantly changing variable factors that require a continuously changing process, or more accurately, a specific new organisational capability, such as those needed for how organisations respond to climate change. Let's welcome Margaret to the Ambition Unleashed podcast and dive straight in if we may. Margaret, can you help us and our listeners understand where to start with these more defined complex problems and how we take on a mindset for exploration as opposed to defaulting to certainty? I think what's really required is, first of all, to think about what are the pain points in the organization? What are the bits of the business that either never seem to work right or that everybody hates or that customers don't like? Mm. or it seemed to take an enormous amount of time or whatever. But anyway, the pain points and try to identify what kind of problem is it. Mm. And if you think there are good reasons to imagine it is a complex problem, start thinking about, okay, so what are the other ways in which we might approach this problem? And I think at this point, it's very important not to be doing that thinking alone and not just to be doing the thinking with higher-ups, because I think you need quite a lot of divergent thinking mm. and you need as many ideas as humanly possible because, you know, ideas are really the cheapest part of change, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and then you want to start framing experiments to see are there ways that we can be doing this that are much better. And this is where I think our addiction to certainty really cripples us because what I typically find in most organizations is nobody wants to do the experiment if they aren't guaranteed of the outcome. Mm. But that's that's not what an experiment is. Right? So very often what I find in most organizations is nobody will do an experiment until they're really, really up against it because they don't like the uncertainty, even though, of course, experiments are the way that they can discover things that they didn't know before. 
And so, you know, in my book, Uncharted, I talk about a number of experiments that people are doing in radically different kinds of companies to see are there different ways of doing this. And the classic case or context in which this is happening, of course, is to do with climate crisis and our need urgently to decarbonize everything we do. And, you know, what we've seen is a kind of horrible, abject failure to do experiments of any kind, just kind of wait for government to figure it out, which they won't, Mm -hmm. um, and wait for the tablets to be handed down from the mountaintop. And what you see are, of course, some highly entrepreneurial companies who are figuring out a lot of stuff very quickly, and even to the point of getting to net positive very quickly, because they'll just try stuff and try stuff and try stuff and they keep the stuff that works and they throw away the stuff that doesn't, mm. but not before understanding why it doesn't and learning from that. And so I think, you know, part of what this means is that innovation can't be a special occasion in businesses anymore. We have to be prepared to experiment and to try new ways of doing things as an ordinary part of business. It means we need a lot more creative thinking than we typically look for mm -hmm. in the people we recruit or the way that we hire and manage people. And it means that we have to accept that you know some of these experiments aren't going to deliver fabulous results, but they are the only way to find new, better ways of working. And I think the other thing that's really crucial to this is you have to make this a non-hierarchical activity because very often younger employees have somewhat more elastic minds. They're less frightened. They have mm -hmm. less invested in the status quo. Mm -hmm. And undoubtedly, you know, we definitely know about problem solving is that if you have more people and there's more diversity among them, you're going to come up with more solutions faster. So it means that all the kind of hierarchy and bureaucracy and certainty that has characterized 20th century management pretty much has to be thrown out the window. And we have to be prepared to be very much more creative in the way that we approach the things that don't work. And let's be very clear, almost everything we're doing in business at the moment doesn't work in the sense yeah. that it is contributing to the biggest crisis mankind has ever faced and i don't quite know how people remain so in love with the status quo when they can see the damage that it's wreaking and will wreak i think we have to acknowledge we are now at a point where we can't afford not to experiment and innovate because mm -hmm. the status quo is going to kill us it strikes me, Margaret, that when you, you, you talk about some of the leadership skills, you mentioned the need to drive innovation, creative thinking, uh, take risks, that to a certain extent, it's a culture change challenge within an organization. And then just reflecting what you said about the macro piece of the role of business and society, one of the things that certainly has come into the lexicon of conversation in the leadership conversations that I engage with with clients is the relevance of purpose beyond generating profit as, as supporting a culture change uh, where people, for example, as you said, removing the hierarchy so some of the younger people can bring genuinely fresh ideas 
So I'm just looking to sort of put a couple of these strands together. And I guess my central question in this is, is to what extent do you think it is a fundamental culture change in the role of leadership and, and, and how leaders engage people to, to, to do this, to express, ex, embrace exploration? And secondly, you know, to have a really clear purpose behind it. I mean, I would just say it changes everything. Right. I mean, you can't, you know, you mm. can't change the culture and keep the processes the same. Mm. Yeah. It may well be we find mm. we can't change the culture and keep a lot of the same people. Mm. So I don't think it's a part of what the business has to do. I think it is the thing, the one thing the business has to do, because otherwise it won't survive. We can't keep making the same products in the same way and expect the climate to heal itself. We can't keep selling, you know, cheap clothes to people and, you know, massive numbers. We can't keep producing food the way that we have done. We can't keep driving petrol and diesel cars. We can't keep flying the way that we are flying. Um, I mean, if you want to call that a culture change, you know, that's fine as long as you accept that culture is means pretty much everything. Mm-hmm. You know, the one thing that worries me about the phrase is it sort of suggests, well, we have, we have to change this bit over here, but everything else can stay the same. If you change this bit over here, everything else changes as a consequence. Yeah, it's the full system. Yeah, yeah the system has to change. And I think um, what strikes me when I go on to projects and, and things is the for the leader especially, they're wanting that return on investment or they're wanting that short-term results like really very quickly. And the, the, so there seems to be a whole load of patient, dollop of patience that people need in the experiment. Um, you talked about, the ex, you know, there's an expectation to get things right straight away sometimes yeah. or, or that we've got to have the answers and they, so you don't yeah. let the diversity in. And, um, you know, I love what you said about actually we're just doing it to learn you know, so it's breaking out of the short term to see a fix straight away. Yeah. 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 No, I I think that's right. And I think what's really interesting is, you know, many of the companies and the businesses that I've written about, um, you know, they're much better at change than they thought they were. Mm -hmm. But how do you know if you don't try it? Yes. Yeah. So I think, you know, what I see is companies just so enamored of the status quo because it gives them a sense of comfort mm. that they can't see how dangerous it is. Yeah. You know, we just, we simply cannot continue to live the way that we do. I, it was mm. so interesting. I did a, I was part of a session with a whole bunch of business leaders about a month ago where, you know, for the very first exercise, they were asked to calculate their carbon footprint, their personal carbon footprint. And, you know, bear in mind that in the UK at the moment, the average carbon footprint is about 7.5 tons. And the goal for 2030 is two and a half tons. And with a few exceptions, everyone's carbon footprint was in double digits Mm. and up to about 35 tons per person and bear in mind that everybody cheats on these things right just like if we're trying to estimate our body mass index we're never quite (laughs) entirely honest about how many glasses of wine we drink or how many chocolates we eat 
Right. So here you have some of the, you know, the educated elite of the business world who themselves are living in a way that is entirely unsustainable. Mm. And of course, a great deal of that is because they're flying a lot. And as far as one can tell, it hasn't occurred to anybody that maybe they need to not do that anymore. And you think, well, this is, this is not exactly, you know, fantastically complex business thinking, but if you haven't even got a carbon budget as part of your planning process, how are you going to make good decisions? Mm. When you Mm. literally don't know the consequences of your day-to-day decisions yeah i mean you know that if you overspend you will run out of money and yet you know if you overspend on carbon you're going to run out of planet Mm. and companies the world over are doing this but this is a room full of business leaders not one of whom was as if somehow you know some some magician's going to come along and fix it all that's not what I'd call leadership. That's desperately passive followership. Yeah. We, we have in our methodology um, uh, a, a tool, if you like, um, or a way of thinking that has people entertain a possibility as if it's already happened. Um, you know, and if it was true, if we could implement this, is that valuable? And to have people really consider what, what you're talking about, you know, having that carbon budget in there, what would that make possible and how do we implement it rather than right. starting with from all the, yeah, but then I wouldn't be able to travel to the US and I love going to the US or, you know, what all of that, all the stuff that comes up about our world and our reality right now mm-hmm. and, and how they can really, you know, change their thinking by thinking about the end state and the outcome first. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And I think that's really important because it it puts people in a very much more positive mindset about why they're going to make the changes that they're making, which is what are the benefits going to be? Margaret, I have to ask you about this tidal wave of data importance, big data, data driven decisions, uh, you you know, huge trend that uh, businesses are embracing. How does that fit in? to this sort of experimental world? Mm. Or is that the bit that gets applied to the complicated? That's very useful, um, but not so useful in the complex. I, I don't know, where does it fit in, in your mind? Well, I don't think it is as complex, I don't think it is as helpful in complex environments. And and the reason yeah. is, is pretty simple. If you're going to use big data to figure out what to do. You have to accept its limitations. And the limitations are that all of the data is historic, right? There are no data sets for the future. So you're going to be dealing with historic data. You're going to be putting that data into models of what happened in the past Mm. on the assumption that it will continue to work in the future. Yeah. Which means you need to check that assumption very carefully and very frequently. Mm. Now, I'm struck by the number of people who tell me, as if this is a well-known scientific fact, that history repeats itself. 
But I have to tell you that no historian believes that because what they will tell you very calmly, because it's kind of the it goes to the heart of why they do what they do. History doesn't repeat itself because the next time something similar starts to happen, people have new knowledge as a result of which they make different decisions. Mm, and they may be better different decisions and they may be worse different decisions. Mm. But essentially, if you use history as a model, then what you tend to be doing is overweighting similarities and underweighting differences. And it's a, it's a sort of aesthetic error is to mm. think that something looks the same, it must be the same. Mm. And so this is not to say that data isn't useful. It's very useful for identifying correlations as, as long as you don't think that they are causes and to try to understand what some of the intrinsic patterns might be. But to outsource to big data decision-making, I think is really dangerous. Mm. Now, if you're playing chess, that's one thing, because chess is a, is a rules-bound, limited, fixed environment. But human life isn't. Yeah. Right? Mm. So it's and important so, that companies know the different, you know, know when to apply this and when yeah. when it's useful. Yeah. You know, I'm a great collector of sort of nerdy data points. And I remember talking to some very clever people at Gartner who had done some, you know, done a lot of research, which showed that the average tenure of chief data officers was something around 16 to 14 months. And the reason it was very easy to understand, you know, why are they hiring these very sophisticated people at very big salaries and not keeping them? And the reason was because the strategy people don't understand data, the data people don't understand strategy. And so you had a really classic business silo mm -hmm. where the data analysts were coming up with all sorts of stuff the strategists couldn't appreciate. And they were coming up with this in an absence of strategic understanding. Mm. So this is another one of these, what I think of as big, hairy problems in business today, which is we have a lot more disciplines that can be useful in a complex environment than we used to mm. in the 20th century. We know now that obviously data analysts are really useful. We know that anthropologists can be fantastically useful. Gillian Tett's wonderful book on that subject. We know that obviously finance people and legal people and engineers are really helpful. We know that sometimes we need ethicists to understand the social and psychological consequences of some of the products that are emerging. And this means decision-making has become more complex as it must, as we make more complex products. Yeah. But the big challenge now is how do these people find a common language? And we need people who can bridge those silos. Yeah. Because if you don't know how to convene them and how to frame answerable questions, you're just going to end up with a room of people screaming at each other. One of the things that I'd like to posit to build into this conversation is about intent, Margaret, because it seems to me that many organizations are full of very bright, very talented, very committed people but their yeah. intent is is to keep the status quo unconsciously. Now, if you if you accuse people of that, you know, you're going to get a reaction. But the system's wired so that the intent doesn't create the the, the transformation. 
and, and, and I, again, I just like your comment on one of the things that we see is this purpose-led intent where the, there's a clarity of outcome, but it's in the context of complexity, as you said so well. We don't know where climate change is going to hit. We don't know the impact, but we can make a genuine commitment to transform our contribution towards it. So I'm just interested in, in this facet of it because I see so much unconscious intent to keep the status quo. So I would entirely agree with you. And I think that my only hesitation or caveat is I see some companies taking the notion of purpose very, very, very seriously. Mm -hmm. And I see a lot of people thinking, oh, this is just like mission statements and value statements. So it's just yes. another one of those fads. And we yeah. know how to do that. So we'll just, you know, we'll have a couple of workshops and then we'll make some posters and mm -hmm. then it'll all be fine. And, um, and of course it isn't really fine. So I think, I think the, the challenge for purpose is, is it real? And what are you prepared to give up to make it real? Also, are you prepared to face into the headwinds when people accuse you of either not being serious or of sacrificing the short term? Absolutely. Bravery and risk-taking and authenticity, it seems to me, really come into the equation, you know, as a quality or a mindset of, of leadership. And why you need that diversity. Well, it's so interesting. When, when I was growing up in the first 20 years of my career, nobody talked about leadership. Mm. Absolutely nobody. They just talked about managers. Mm. And everybody knew what managers did. They managed. So that was fine. That was kind of, you know, that did what language is supposed to do. Now we talk about leaders when what we really mean are people with big, well-paid jobs. And I don't think there are as many leaders out there as the great cohort of people that we randomly describe as leaders. Mm. Leaders are people who are ahead. They are people whom other people want to follow. Mm. Not that are made to follow, not that are incentivized to follow, but genuinely want to to follow mm. and you know as somebody who prizes language highly i wish we would start using this language more precisely mm. i know lots of people who are very senior executives they're very rich most of them are men very powerful some of them are leaders and some of them categorically are not and I think we should make leadership something that is aspirational, not something that just comes once you have a seven-figure salary. Yeah, I mean, that's a whole nother podcast, I think, the distinction of what is leadership. And I, I can't let this opportunity go past. There's an interesting subject I keep hearing about, which is definitely in an experimentation, um, and it's the four-day week that people are playing with different industries are playing with at the moment i don't know about you but uh certainly the beginning of this year end of last year a lot of people i spoke to were exhausted you know burnt out you know coming out of the pandemic rushing back into a normal year i, I don't know what 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 necessarily it was but this idea of a four-day week i think is very exciting and it's unexplainable you know, it's not linear. It's not predictable uh, what's going to happen. It, and the results are just astounding about the increase in productivity. 
Um, and that that must be experimentation at its best. Well, I would agree with you about that, but it's not new. Um, I think the first time I ran and I had a colleague who was doing a four day week was 1987 and it worked just fine for her. Mm. And, you know, we all worked at the BBC and she did a four day week and it was great. And that's what she wanted to do. And that's what she did. I mean, I have never, ever run a company where I have told people when they had to be in the office, never in my entire career. Mm. I've assumed that people are grown ups and they're good judges of where they could do their work best. And the only deal is you can't let your colleagues down. Yeah. So I right. think in many ways, this kind of illustrates exactly what we've all been talking about, which is, you know, this is something we could have been doing mm. 30 years ago. Mm. And the in, the productivity information may be updated, but it isn't new. You know, we have known since 1888, which is when the first productivity experiment was done in the Zeiss Lens Laboratory, that human productivity taps out pretty reliably at about 40 hours a week. Mm. And the reason it goes down after that is because people get tired, to your point, mm. and then they start making mistakes, and now they need more time to clean up the, the mistakes that they've made. <laughs> so it becomes very unproductive to work people too long. Now, yeah. most managers have thought, well, if I can get 100 products from somebody in 10 hours, then I can get a thousand products from them in a hundred hours. And it never, ever, ever works out that way. Mm. You know, if you keep everything else in the experiment the same, because people get tired and even machines, you know, start breaking. Mm. So I think, you know, again, this has been an opportunity just like working from home was an opportunity we'd had for 10 years before we were forced into it where our love affair with a miserable status quo trumped the opportunities which experiments clearly offered for decades. And, you know, what I hope is that instead of people agonizing over missing opportunities in the past, what I hope they do is they take this to heart and think, okay, so we could have been doing this much earlier. What are the other really good things we could be doing now instead of waiting? We can see that the climate is going to be really terrible. We can see it's going to produce mass migration. We know it's going to make parts of the world uninhabitable. We know supply chains are going to get really, 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 really tricky. Instead of pretending that they're anomalies, why don't we cook up a whole batch of experiments to see how we can do this stuff better? Let's do it now before it hurts. Yeah. That's such an impressive call to action, Margaret. Yeah. and. Thank you for all the wonderful insights through this conversation. There is, as you say, at one level, a, com a compelling need to transform our thinking, to liberate ourselves from seeking certainty, embracing innovation. And I was just m wondering, you mentioned, you know, through this conversation, some examples in your book. Are there any sort of one or two breakthrough projects or organizations or even individuals that you'd like to call out as an example and end on a positive note of what's working really well that you, you see? Yeah, I mean, so it's interesting. I'm sitting in at the University of Bath right now. There's a company about two miles from here that produces software for the NHS. It's a company with no management at all, really, where it's all done by self-managed teams. And it's really interesting because 
I mentored a young woman to come to this university, which she was afraid to apply to because it's so hard to get into. And she's done wonderfully. And that's where she's ended up working. And it's been really interesting because her first placement was in a conventional software firm. And she really hated it because all she could do was exactly what she was told. And it was pretty mundane and it was pretty repetitive. And then her second placement was at this company, which is called Maiden. And she now she loves her job and she loves her colleagues and she's, you know, being really well paid and she's doing work she really believes in. And, you know, if you ask the people at Maiden, you know, what was their breakthrough? They look at you like, what breakthrough? <laughs> I mean, we just figured out that we could, were really good at working together and we didn't need a master plan. And then if we didn't bother with master plans, we could work faster and get more stuff done. And we can spend more time talking to our clients in the NHS and we can come up with better ideas for them. They didn't feel, well, we have to do something that's going to deliver universal peace and happiness for the entire planet. They just <laughs> kind of got rid of a lot of the, the bureaucracy and the hierarchy and the grandiosity control. of business and control. Yeah. And they were lucky enough to have a CEO who thought, I don't know how else we're going to scale the business. Mm -hmm. And if we want to have a good positive impact on society, we want the company to grow so that we can, you know, bring more benefit. Wonderful simplicity of an organization where it was self-evident that we trust our people is one of the key things that I, I took from that. That's lovely. Yes, absolutely right. Absolutely right. Very thought-provoking, Justin. What struck me was to adopt a more exploratory mindset, we need to be thinking like a startup organization, an entrepreneurial company, try lots of things, figure out the new problems quickly, keep what works, throw away what doesn't. Margaret said, innovation is not a special occasion anymore. We need to increase our creative thinking capability and accept that experiments won't always deliver fabulous results all the time. Problem solving and innovation thrives as a non-hierarchical and diverse activity, ensuring all thinking minds, but particularly younger minds who are less frightened and less invested in the status quo are included. All the bureaucracy, hierarchy and certainty of the 20th century management style needs to evolve fast. The thing that businesses have to do is to look to change and evolve everything. Culture especially impacts everything in the system. One thing I think is positive about the pandemic is companies saw just how good they were at changing, but we have to carry on trying new things at the same scale. How do we continue to change without the immediate survival crisis? Which brings me on to my second insight, the importance of allowing ourselves to dream Use our imagination to create different possibilities for the future. A specific capability for leaders today, and I would argue the definition for leadership today. With no data sets for the future, we need to create the future and carefully design it on a clear set of assumptions which we're constantly testing and reviewing. Absolutely, Sarah. And to build on this, it strikes me how important it is now to break up any silos with leaders that can recognize the need for systemic thinking to address the complex systems that we are facing with so many stakeholders involved. 
and also the need for diversity in our leadership and teams that can embrace the many different perspectives. All of this whilst having a bold commitment and clarity in the way that they communicate and collaborate. A final thing that struck me from our conversation with Margaret is the need for authentic purpose-led leadership that goes beyond purely an aspiration and in the worst cases a PR greenwash tool to manage reputation to a leadership culture that is capable and committed to confronting the challenges of what we need to give up and balancing the need to deliver on the short term by having clarity on the end goal and unleashing rapid and bold experimentation through rewarding trial and error with a deep learning culture. So thinking about your day ahead, three things from Justin and I. Number one, can you become more aware of when you are craving the need for certain outcomes instead of exploring new ideas and trying different approaches to achieve your ambitions? And number two, can you today bring more diversity into your team for something you are problem solving? And number three, are you connected to your purpose in how you engage with your organisation and in your life? This episode concludes this series of Ambition Unleashed. It has been inspiring to explore with thought-provoking guests seven of the key mindsets that allow ambitions of any nature to accelerate and flourish. From creating possibility, making declarations for the future, being a learner and not a knower, to decoupling ourselves from our identity of risk, to play to win, break self-agency and embrace breakdowns. Thanks for listening to this podcast series. Please do keep emailing us at ambition at achievebreakthrough.com. Follow us on your podcast app and add that five-star rating review so you don't miss the next series of Ambition Unleashed when we launch next year. Thanks again and see you all in 2024.